Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend, co-host, Scott Hemingway. Hey, what's happening, everybody? A.K.A. The other guy. Oh, it's the Now other. I'm embracing it. You see, exactly. I'm going to make hats. What? I'm going to make a hat. Well, you did get your hat back. You left it here last week. I know, and I immediately put it on without even looking for shit in it. So <laughs> I, I, I'm not feeling any discomfort, but maybe you just have very comfortable poo. <laughs> yep. Mm. It's nice and warm. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish or those who don't like talk about poo, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We are not experts on any of the topics we present, clearly, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in true crime and the darker side of history. Totes. Totes my goats. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Episode 33, and we want to start out like we do every week now, thanking our regular subscribers and listeners and welcoming our new listeners. Even irregular listeners. Thank people you. who listen uh, like not often, people who binge, thanks for listening. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. people who don't poo as frequently or poo quite frequently. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Mothers. Mothers and fathers. I'm curious of the percentage of people who listen to us on the shooter. I'm not. Mm, okay. Until now, every case we've looked into here on Dark Poutine has either been about crimes in Canada, perpetrated by a Canadian outside the country, or has happened to a Canadian. This is correct. Uh, we felt like we were missing out on some really interesting cases, so we've decided to make every few episodes, and it'll probably be more like every few months. Yeah, once every two months or so. So or so, uh, about a case that doesn't involve Canadians or happen inside Canada. We're calling these away games, much like hockey team plays games away from their home mm -hmm. arena. Yeah, and we're pretty much athletes. I'm a, I'm a donut athlete. Still an athlete, my friend. You're a couch athlete. I'm a coach athlete. Yes. Coach athlon. Coach. <laughs> I'm a coach athlon. Coach athlete. A lot of people want us to keep our Canadian flavor too. I got some very concerned communications from people that we would lose what we do. 
we're not going to do that. We, no, we no. really do want to make sure that we keep dark poutine as Canadian as we can and not go off the CN rails. Ew. We'll continue to bring you lots of true crime from Canada. And, and it's also important to remember, even when we're covering away games, we're Canadian. We we're, are. We're bringing the Canadian perspective A. and the Canadian view to the story. That's right. A. A. B. So for our first away game, I got in way over my head <laughs> research-wise. <laughs> yes, yes. So much so, we have to break it into two parts. Yeah. So it's an away series. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, we're taking on one of the most notorious serial killers in recent history. And we're heading over to the former USSR, the United Soviet Socialist Republic. If you think you know who we're talking about, scream it out right now, wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, if you do that, somebody's going to be very afraid. <laughs> Just yell this guy's name. Do it. Do it. One of the greatest hockey rivalries of all time was between Canada and the USSR. Oh, good God, yes. From 1956 until 91, when the USSR broke up during Perestroika. Mm-hmm. Now Canada and Russia are still rivals, but it doesn't quite feel the same as it did then. No, well, you, you're talking about during the Cold War and everything yeah. as well. So it there had was a lot cultural of added. Kind yeah, of yeah, feel. right. Oh, granted, I'd certainly love to see a Russia play the states right now. Didn't a Russian win the Stanley Cup this year? A Russian did, yeah. and he plays for the team in Washington, District of Columbia. So. Mm -hmm. There will be more Russians visiting the White House. Dun, dun, dun. Well, he just invited Putin, by the way. Oh. So. Putin. And Stephen Harper. And, oh, God. Stick around for our outro music this week. Because it's Canada Day, you're going to hear O Canada being sung, but it is actually O Canada being sung by the Soviet Red Army Choir. And this is prior to a hockey game in the Soviet Union. Good place for it. Yeah. And they sing it in English and in French. And I'm pretty sure that they're singing phonetically. It doesn't sound like they understand a fucking word. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, let's get to our case. Between 1978 and 1990, one of the most prolific and brutal serial killers in history stalked, raped, murdered, and mutilated as many as 56 children, teenagers, male and female, as well as young women. He even ate parts of some of his victims. He's been referred to as the Butcher of Rostov, the Forest Strip Killer, the Red Ripper, and the Rostov Ripper. His name is familiar to true crime buffs all over the world. <laughs> Absolutely. An extra word of caution, many of this monster's victims were children, as I mentioned. If you are overly uncomfortable with discussions of child molestation, murder, and mutilation, this may not be the episode for you. I'm uncomfortable with all of those things, but uh, I'm committed to the podcast, so I can't walk off. Fantastic. I have right. a lot of Russian names to get correct here. Yeah, good luck. And the first one will be the killer. Andrei Romanovich Chikitilo. Yeah, that was well done. You're welcome. And yeah, well done. Thank you, sir. He was born on 16th of October, 1936 to Anna and Roman Chikitilo. And what I learned is that the Russians, typically their middle name is related to their father's first name. Oh. So Andrei Romanovich Chikitilo... Romanovich is of his father's name, Roman. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah and that's why reading uh, Dostoevsky and things like that is so confusing. <laughs> sure. Yeah. One of many reasons. The Chikatilos were collective farm laborers who lived in a single room shack in Yabluchny in Sumy province of the Ukraine Socialist Soviet Republic, a part of the larger USSR at the time. Where was the shack, Mike? 
Jablučni. Jablučni. Perfect. Jablučni. Jablučni. That's when you sneeze. Jablučni. <gasps> if we have any listeners who speak Russian as a second language or even a first language, we apologize. I think you're doing a bang up job so far. I, I practiced a lot, actually. <laughs> well, I was saying, as I was typing, I would say these names out. Yeah, I, well, I can imagine so. So the political slogan of the Soviet party was workers of the world unite. And that came from Karl Marx's communist manifesto. Mm. At the time of Chikatilo's birth, the Ukraine was in the midst of a horrific famine due to Stalin's policies on the collectivization of agriculture. Do you know what that is, Scott? Uh, it seems to me like it would be a hoarding of all agricultural goods yeah, to be distributed evenly. Essentially, what they would do is they would have these poor people farm the land, and then the product that they would farm was sent to the cities, and they barely got to keep any of it. Sweet deal. Yeah, sweet deal for the cities. Yeah. And communism is like great in theory, but in practice? Yeah, it seems no, to be quite no, messed up. Yeah. Talk to Jordan Peterson about that. No, I'd rather not. Okay. <laughs> Essentially, the food that was grown in the area is sent off to feed the people in the cities where the bulk of the population was, leaving the rural folks to starve. Mm. Some even resorted to cannibalism. And this will play a little bit more later on. Yep. Anna Chikatilo told Andre early on that he had an older brother named Stepan. She claimed that when Stepan was four in 1934, he was kidnapped by starving local villagers who cooked and ate him. Oh, wow. So Chikatilo's brother was apparently taken and eaten. Wow. I, I couldn't really verify whether he actually existed or he was a figment of either Andre or Anna's twisted imagination. Wait, yeah, I mean, there's a... It makes your mind wander in a couple of directions. If it is true, could it have actually been the parents who ate him? Or could it have just been a fable used to kind of, you better behave or the villagers will come and get you. Like they did your brother kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It makes for an interesting story point regarding uh, his later actions. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. That would be something that sticks in your noggin. Yeah. It's very you're talking age. to a four-year-old or yeah. a two, you're talking to a five-year-old about cannibalism and yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's very, very uh, formative and influential part of your life. So. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Russia. Russia. On June 22nd, 1941, World War II came to the USSR. German forces began Operation Barbosa which was the Nazi ideology that Germany could annex the Soviet Union and use the Slavs, a perceived lesser race, as their slaves, as well as acquiring the many natural resources in the Republic. Charming. Very nice people, the Nazis. Under the oppressive rule of the Stalinist government, life in the Ukraine got much worse once the Nazi invasion happened. <laughs> The Eastern Front was established, and the already sparse resources were diverted again from the people to the war effort. Yeah, wow. So you're starving? Hmm. Let's give you less. Yeah, let's give you less, especially now that there's a war on. Yep. Roman Chikatilo was conscripted and went off to fight the Nazis with the Red Army early in 1941. He was injured, captured, and taken as a prisoner of war pretty much right away. Hmm. Andre and his mother were left alone. They slept in the same bed. Andre was having trouble with bedwetting. Anna would beat him and shame him every time he did it, which was frequently. Yeah, no, definitely sounds like the kind of parents who would, if you don't listen to me, you're going to get eaten like your brother. Yeah. Young Chick Tilla was witnessed to bombings, shootings, and fires. 
It was a regular thing to be exposed to blood, dead bodies, human parts, or other gore, as were many other children at the time who didn't become serial killers. <laughs> but what a what a horrible existence that would have to be. Have you ever seen the film Come and See? It's about that time. I don't time. think so. It's a Russian film about that time. And they actually use real Russian artillery in the film. It's it's crazy. I'll show it to you sometime. Yeah, that sounds dangerous. It's, it's very long, but it's it's about this time and how how people resorted to very, very crazy things. Yeah, it sounds like a very, very crazy time. So that will breed crazy things. Yeah. People did very, very wacky things to yeah. to survive. Well, starvation will really uh crack one. For sure. Andre and his mother were even burned out of their own home at one point during the war. Mm. Often they had to hide from Nazis to save their own lives. In 1943, Anna gave birth to a girl she named Tatiana. You might be confused. Didn't uh, the father go away in 1941? Yeah. That's a pretty long gestation period for somebody to be pregnant. Yeah, it's Russia. Who knows? The word is that Tatiana may have been the product of a rape between Anna and a German soldier that Andre may have witnessed. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. So again, here he would have been uh, like eight years old at that point. Yeah. And watching his mother be raped. Yeah. Oh. Not good. No. Andre started school in 1944, pretty late, I guess, due to the war. He was sensitive and very shy, and he had a difficult time making friends. Andre was seriously myopic. I think you're myopic, are you not? Yep. He couldn't see the blackboard for his lessons, but he still took to reading and would literally bury his nose in books. Mm. He was ashamed to ask for glasses because he saw the other bespectacled kids bullied and called Ochkarik, or four eyes. He didn't want to attract any more negative attention to himself. Mm. Chikatilo hated the Germans and would fantasize about being a hero for the Russian partisan resistance. He also fantasized about brutally murdering Nazi soldiers in the most creative and gory ways. Mm, interesting. Chikatilo himself claimed he never even tasted bread until he was 12 years old. <laughs> well, I guess there Famine. was none around. Yep. The family was even forced to eat grass and leaves at their leanest times during the war. Wow. In 1945, Roman Chikatilo was liberated from the concentration camp he'd been in by American GIs. He returned home. He came with a horrific case of TB as well. Roman would lie on the floor moaning and coughing up blood. Jeez. Although Andre had prayed for his father's return, Chikatilo's classmates told Andre his father was a coward, having been captured by the Nazis so early in the war. Um, this, you know, no doubt about it, he's had a pretty rough childhood. He absolutely had a My shitty God. early life. Definitely but, shitty. Jeez. I could see how somebody would develop a real anger. It would be impossible to not be traumatized now. Right. We've both been through trauma and neither of us are serial killers, as far as I'm aware. Dun, dun, dun. I don't eat people, nor do I kill them. <laughs> Me neither. I talk about people eating people and killing people. Yeah, kind of the same thing. Not really. No, totally different. Chikatilo's teachers were impressed with his interest in the Communist Party, and he voraciously read everything he could on the subject. He loved Chekhov and Dostoevsky as well. Hmm. His favorite book was a notable Soviet work called Molodaya Gavardia, or The Young Guard, a Stalin prize winner that was published after World War II and required reading for all, as most things are in <laughs> communism. 
in Soviet Russia, book choose you. <laughs> it told tales of Soviet underground bravery in the face of Nazi occupation. Things got worse for Chikatilo as he entered puberty. It's been said that his breasts were too big and he was called Baba, a rude word for woman. As well, his male classmates noticed his oddly shaped foreskin at the urinals and made fun of him in front of the girls at school. Dear Lord. He became terrified of girls even more than the boys as he was ridiculed mercilessly. No matter, he thought, his love of the Communist Party and intellect would outshine the other kids. So he had to be better somehow. Yep. When Chikitilo was 14, he was made editor of the school paper and he was quite proud of himself. Yeah, totally. In 1952... Andre went to work at a brick factory for the summer. Part of the wall of the factory collapsed on him and he was relatively unhurt, but it, it hit him in the head. Like, what's next? A plane falls on him? <laughs> My God. Exactly. In 1953, when Stalin died, Chikatilo tearfully read the obituary from Pravda for his classmates. And, you know, Pravda is the main... The propaganda machine. Yeah, the propaganda newspaper. Also that year, Chikatilo failed the entrance exam for the law school at Moscow State University. Disappointed, he signed up for a course in communications engineering at a local technical college. What happened next was definitely formative toward Andre's later life. This is from Peter Conradi's book, Red Ripper. Quote, in the spring of 1954, a few months before he turned 18, Chikatilo was at home when the doorbell rang. It was Tanya Bala, a friend of his younger sister Tatiana. Tatiana's not here, he said, walking over to her. She'll be back soon. That's a shame, the girl replied, but made no attempt to move. Chikatilo looked at her body, at her short skirt, and the few inches of thigh visible above her stockings. She was only 13 but she looked much older as she stared back at him, straight into his eyes. He suddenly felt aroused and walked toward her. She stood her ground, not even flinching, as he grabbed her by the arms and pushed her down onto the grass. Neither of them took off their clothes. Certainly, they did not try to have intercourse. Instead, they just lay for a few minutes together on the ground, pressed closely together. Even so, he felt ashamed afterwards. Huh. He wanted to save himself for marriage, apparently. <laughs> A straight up guy. Yeah, that's a close quote, yeah. Yeah, so his first sexual experience was him pouncing on a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. When he was 18. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not, but, uh, yeah. He does not have healthy sex imagination. No. Yeah, he doesn't, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't get better. <laughs> I would imagine not, knowing his future. For work experience, he was sent by the Young Communist League to a city in the Urals. Because I'm not pronouncing that fucking name. No way. Nizini. Nizini Tagil. Look at that, Mike. Okay, I did it. You nailed it. He tried to have sex with a few local girls, but he had trouble achieving erections from normal sexual activity. Oh, God. He was again embarrassed and humiliated. The girls would mock him for his poor performance. Mm -hmm. Those darn girls. Yep. It's all their fault. Always. He's like the pioneer of incel. Yeah, he's pretty much an incel. Yeah. Yeah. In 1957, Andre joined the army and spent three years there. Oh, that must have gone well. Great. He didn't get along with the other soldiers and he didn't like army life very much. Couldn't have seen that. Because he had trouble with women, some of the other soldiers even called him a homosexual, which was very much frowned upon at the time and actually kind of still is in Russia. Is this true? Yeah. Yeah. 
During his time in the Army, Andre had an experience with a girl on a date who felt he was getting too close too fast. She tried to pry herself away from him, but he held on tightly for a few moments, relishing the feeling of power as the girl squirmed. Hmm. The girl was upset with him, but he enjoyed himself. Well, that's exactly how it's supposed to be, Chickadilla. Yeah, you want the girls to be upset when you hug them. Yep. That's a sign of serial killer success. No, that's a sign of like, she doesn't like you. Oh, noted. Okay. <laughs> yep. In 1960, Andre Chikatilo moved back home and took up a job as a telephone engineer. Andre's sister Tatiana knew Andre was shy and lonely. She began to look for someone to set him up with. His sister sounds nice. She introduced him to her friend, Faina, who was three years younger than Andre. And Faina did not find Andre particularly attractive, but she liked that he was shy and not always trying to have sex with her. Oh. She also liked that he didn't drink excessively as many of his peers did. He didn't drink that much at all. Hmm. So the two were married in 1963. Why, you know, she, she tolerates me. She settled well. She settled well. Well, you know, he hasn't tried to hurt me yet, so he's not good with him. Chikatilo never enjoyed sex with his wife and treated it like another household chore. Something must have worked at least twice. They had their first child, and a daughter named Lyudmila, in 1967. And in 1969, they had a son named Yuri. Classic Russian name. Although he loved his children, he struggled in his marriage to Faina. He resented her as she made his sexual failings stand out. He became depressed, and at the same time, he was having sexual fantasies that were increasingly dark and deviant. Mm -hmm. Perhaps more education might help. Andre enrolled in Liberal Arts University in Rostov, studying literature and Russian philosophy. He graduated in 1971. He found a job as a Russian teacher. He found a job as a Russian teacher in a town nearby with an unpronounceable name. I just, I didn't even write it down. I just didn't want to try it. I'm, I'm like curious. It's all like Zs and Xs? Pretty much. Yeah. Backwards R's. Andre was not a good teacher. He was shy and he had no classroom presence or charisma. The students did as they pleased as Andre was unable to enforce any kind of discipline. Mm -hmm. He was not very respected among the teachers either. They found him brooding and grumpy. He would tattle on his peers to the school director whenever he could. Again, he did not fit in. Yeah, I, I, have, I don't think there's anywhere that he does fit in. He doesn't do himself any favors. No. At all. No, no. He's maybe, just an asshole. Maybe bring them all a coffee to work. Like, you know, not like tattle on them. Little boy wanted to open lemonade stand. He was executed. <laughs> he started to have some obsessions, oh. and they began to dominate him. He became attracted to young girls, oh, no. as he felt he could overpower them physically and intellectually. These two things were a terrible combination. Some of the students who lived far outside of town boarded at the school. Chikitilo would show up at the dormitory to, quote, check up on them mm -hmm. as they were preparing for bed, often just in time to see them in their underwear. Oh, God. In May of 1973, on an outing, Chikatilo went swimming with some students. He grabbed a 15-year-old named Luba around the hips and began to fondle her. The girl screamed, which aroused Chikatilo, so he fondled her more. She screamed so much her classmates came to her rescue. Chikatilo was not disciplined for this molestation. Oh my God. A month later, he grabbed 14-year-old Anya, who had stayed after school for tutoring at his suggestion. Mm. He began beating her on the back and buttocks with a ruler. She too squirmed and screamed and tried to get away. 
Chikatilo held on tight, hitting her with the ruler until he ejaculated in his pants. He then let go of Anya and left the room. Oh, fuck. Anya jumped out the window and ran home to tell her parents. Again, there was no discipline for Chikatilo for this assault either. Jeez, that just reinforces that this is a good thing for him. No punishment. He began to walk around rubbing himself on young girls and other women on the trains or buses as he was taking it to and from work. Good God. Chikatilo also molested his six-year-old niece on a few occasions, and at one point, when she was visiting, he came into the room naked and stared at her as he masturbated to completion. <sighs> okay, well, I'd like him dead by this Already? point. Already? Yep. By this point, yep. Yeah, yeah Scott quite likes this gentleman. Nope. Uh, yeah, he could fall under one of these said trains. In 1974, the rumors and accusations were too much for the school. They asked him to resign or be fired. Chikatilo left, and no mention of his bad behavior is on his record. After all, he was a member in good standing of the Communist Party. Good communist men. They can do no wrong. So many parallels between like him early on and think movies like The Keepers, you know, where there's uh, schools... Mm -hmm. that uh just creeps decide yeah, to yeah tell you tell you to to quit and then they don't report anything and you just keep going from school to school so what do you think he did next uh found another job as a teacher at another school right around the corner <laughs> yeah well there we go chikatilo didn't like the school not because it was a bad place to work but because the youngest prospects uh he had for victims were about 15 and didn't think he'd be able to control them as easily Again, Andre was not popular with the students or faculty. When it came time to make cuts in 1978, out the door he went. Mm. He got a job as a warden in another technical school half hour away in Shakti, a coal mining town near Rostov-on-Don. Mm. He didn't do well either there, as the school was full of teenage boys between 15 and 19. He really struggled maintaining order. Chikatilo's own kids even started rebelling against him. In one instance, at the school's hostel, Chikatilo snuck in and began filleting a sleeping 15-year-old boy. Jesus. When the boy woke up, Chikatilo fled. He tried again a few days later, and the boys in the room were waiting for him and chased him out. Fuck. Good for them. No discipline ever came from these assaults, and it is unknown whether they were even reported. Mm. Chikatilo bought a one-room house in Shakti and didn't tell his family about it. The hovel only cost a few hundred rubles, and Faina thought he was living in the teacher's quarters at the school through the week. Jesus Christ. What a host without telling his family. Yeah. Like, wow. So he would lure down and out drunkards and prostitutes to the shack and attempt to have sex with them, but he was rarely successful because he couldn't make his thing work. <laughs> he attempted to lure young girls back to his place, but they usually just ran off. And with that, we'll take a bit of a break. On December 22nd, 1978, at around 5 p.m., a nine-year-old girl named Yelena Zakotnova was walking along the street and was spotted by Chikatilo. Mm -hmm. From Peter Conradi's book, Red Ripper, quote, She looked like she'd stepped out of a fairy tale, a pretty little girl wearing a red coat with a black furry collar, a rabbit hat, and felt boots. Close quote. Andre approached the girl 
and asked her why she was so late walking home. And this is exactly the same tactic that my attacker used in 1981. Mm. Elena said that she'd been visiting a friend and that she was worried her mother would be angry as she was so late coming home. She'd lost track of time. Elena and Andre walked together chatting. Elena said she needed to go to the toilet. Andre made his move and told her he lived right around the corner. She could use his. As they walked toward his little house on 26 Mezevoy Lane, Chikatilo became extremely excited. When Yelena and Chikatilo reached the house and the door closed behind them, Andre pounced. He laid on top of the helpless girl and rubbed himself on her. He put his hand over her mouth and went about fondling her. Fuck. He was unable to achieve an erection and hurt the girl while trying to force himself into her. God, fuck. The sight of blood caused him to immediately have what he said later was the strongest orgasm of his life. There was no turning back now. God damn it. In those moments, he realized that it was blood that he needed to find release. Chikatilo had a jackknife in his pocket, and he used it to cut the girl again. More blood, more pleasure. Fuck, fuck, fuck. He stabbed Elena in the stomach. That excited him even more. He went into a frenzy, stabbing her multiple times. Yelena's blood was all over. Chikatilo ripped and tore the girl apart. When she said something to him, even after all this violence, he strangled her with his hands until he was sure that she was gone. Oh my god. When he was finished, Andre felt horrified by what he'd done. Probably more like horrified by, holy shit, I'm going to get caught. Usually that's the... the it's not actual. It's not remorse. Not actual remorse. He redressed the girl the best he could and took her in his arms and out into the darkness. Just a few yards away was Grashevka River. He threw the girl into the river along with her school bag and watched as she floated away. Andre ran back to his house, terrified he'd be caught. Exactly. Two days later, on December 24, 1978, Yelena Zakuknova's mutilated body was found in the river not too far from where Chikatilo had tossed her in. The police began canvassing the neighborhood. One of Chikatilo's neighbors mentioned that they'd seen his light on all night long. Police talked to Andre Chikatilo, but they found he'd behaved strangely during their questioning, and after contacting the schools he worked at, they learned about his pedophilic behavior there. So now they're willing to talk about it. Yep. He looked like a good suspect. Police talked to him numerous times, but he admitted to nothing. Chikatilo dropped off the suspect list when they began looking into another man for the crime, 25-year-old Alexander Kravchenko. He lived right down the road from Chikatilo. Hmm. Kravchenko had been convicted in Crimea at 17 of a crime very much like the murder of Yelena Zakotnova. He'd been released after serving six years of a 10-year sentence. The police thought they had their man. I can understand why. Yeah, for sure. sure. For some reason, Kravchenko initially confessed to the crime, but recanted it when it went to trial. Yeah, I'm suspecting maybe something to do with... Uh, uh, the KGB know, and people and, questioning him and being brutal. And, and, you know, yeah, being interrogated. I'm sure it wasn't just like, hey, so what happened? Yeah. Yeah, this is Soviet Russia. Yes. Kravchenko was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in a labor camp at first. There was public outcry about the leniency of the sentence, and it was successfully appealed. Apparently in Russia, you can appeal a conviction sentence. Wow. If you're the prosecution. Wow. Yep. Okay. Well, that's a new twist. A few years after, the sentence that people wanted was brought down, death. 
Kravchenko claimed he was innocent to his last breath when he was shot in 1984. And he was. He was one of Chikatilo's victims, really. Right, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Yep. Yeah. In an indirect way. Yeah. He may, I mean, innocent of that crime, but he certainly wasn't an innocent individual. No, he no. He murdered somebody. Yeah, definitely. But, he'd, uh, he'd done something before. But this was not the crime he was uh, executed for. No. Chikatilo would later admit to Yelena Zakotnova's murder as his first. For nearly three years after his first murder, Chikatilo fought the urge to kill again. But as with most secret obsessions, he was soon consumed by thoughts of mutilating someone else. Yeah. He started working as a supply clerk, but lied to people saying he was a teacher if he was just meeting them for the first time. Hmm. I guess he was embarrassed of working as a supply clerk. I guess so. He would go to Rostov Library and stare at girls while pretending to read the newspaper. It was here on September 3rd, 1981, that Andrei Chikatilo met 17-year-old Larissa Tachenko. She was outgoing and popular with boys, but she also had a rebellious streak. She'd stay out past curfew, dating older men from the military base near her dorm. Chikatilo told her he wanted to take her for a bite to eat at a local restaurant, and she agrees to go along. She even agreed to go with him to a quieter spot so they could be alone in the forest near the Don River. The 45-year-old Chikatilo thought that she, this young 17-year-old girl, would be into having sex with him. Mm -hmm. But when he grabbed her and started fondling her, she fought back. This turned him on even more. He put one hand over her mouth, and with the other, he beat her in the head. When she was stunned, Chikatilo choked the life out of Larissa, and after she was dead, he began biting her body, mutilating it, biting off one of her nipples completely. <sighs> He also used a stick on her as he had no knife with him. Oh my God. He ran around her naked body over and over, whooping with glee. My God. After coming to his senses, he put some branches and leaves over her body, filled her mouth with dirt and left. I don't understand the filling the mo mouth with dirt. Well, that's what I, I actually got into thinking of it. Uh, perhaps the dirt was a weird commentary about her brash language. You got a dirty mouth? Yeah, that it's. I'm trying to think like yeah. a profiler. No, right? that's like, an. I mean, there's definitely a reason for it. Larissa Tachenko was found the very next day. Police looked at everybody who knew Larissa, and no one remembered seeing her on the day she disappeared. Chikatilo managed to hold his desires in check for another nine months. On June 12, 1982. 13-year-old Luba Biruk left home for the last time to go shopping in a nearby village. She was picking up some food for her mom. Oh, God. She went to a store, picked up everything on mom's shopping list, and she was last seen at a bus stop. And this is where she met Andre Chikatilo. For some reason, uh, most likely the creep staring at her, she decided not to take the bus and started to walk home. Chikatilo caught up with her and began chatting with her as they walked along. He saw his chance as they entered a more secluded area and Chikatilo jumped on the girl, forcing her to the ground behind some bushes. He tore her clothes off and tried and failed to have sex with the girl. He was ready with his knife this time. As he stabbed and she screamed, he found his satisfaction again. He stabbed her in the eyes repeatedly. Good God. Seriously. When he was done... He covered her body and threw her clothes away. Her skeletal remains were found two weeks later. The hot summer had hastened the decomposition. Hmm. The murder monster had been let out of its cage. Chikatilo could not contain it until late 1982. Hmm. After Luba's murder, 
Chikatilo murdered six more that year. Wow. July 25th, 1982, Chikatilo murdered 14-year-old girl named Luba Volobieva. She was murdered near Krasnodar Airport. On August 13th, Chikatilo killed his first male victim, Oleg Pozadaev, who was only nine years old at the time. His body has never been found. Oh. August 16th, 1982, Chikatilo killed a 16-year-old runaway named Olga Kuprina. September 8th, 1982, Chikatilo killed 18-year-old Irina Karabelnikova. She was homeless at the time, and Andre had lured her from a train station. September 15, 1982, Chikatilo killed his second male victim, Sergei Kuzmin, 15. He was also a runaway. December 11, 1982, 10-year-old Olga Stalmechinok followed Chikatilo off a bus into the woods where he brutally murdered her. The investigation obviously was in high gear. At least four of the murders had been linked to the same man by January of 1984. They called the investigation Lesa Poloza, which translates to Forest Path. I typically like to spend a lot more time with victims, mm -hmm. but the sheer number that this man murders... Yeah, it wouldn't be possible to cover them all. It's impossible. Yeah. It would take hours and hours of podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I really did feel bad. I actually stopped writing at a couple of points yeah, here imagine. and I thought, I don't know if I want to continue with this yeah. because I don't feel like I was able to give the victims the respect that they deserve. Yeah, I hear you. But I think just repeating their names is the best respect I can give them. Mm -hmm. And even though I do a shitty job of pronouncing these Russian names. Yeah, I think you're doing a pretty good job, actually. That's why I practiced. Yeah. But I really don't want it to seem like I'm rushing through this at all. Oh, I think that's a good clarification. I don't think you are. Okay. I don't think you are. I think it is understandable that it would literally be hours uh, of podcasts just dedicated to to them, which maybe I, they deserve at some point. I, but. I just wanted to tell this horrific story. This is one that's fascinated me ever since I was a kid. Yeah. You ever see the movie Gorky Park? Yes. I wonder if that was about. It is, yeah. Yeah. In a roundabout way. Yeah, based on. Many of the murders had signature aspects. All were eviscerated with knives and bite marks were often evident. Some had clearly been cannibalized. The victims had their sexual organs sliced off and many had been viciously stabbed in the eyes. From Peter Conradi's book Red Ripper. Quote, according to one theory, the murderer believed the old wives' tale that a dead person's retinas somehow retained the last image they'd see before death. Hmm. In this case, the face of their killer. Another more likely theory was that the killer was so ashamed of what he was doing, so unwilling to come to terms with it, that he tried to avoid the gaze of his victims. Blinding, or at the very least blindfolding them, was the only way. End quote. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting theories. Yeah, pretty fascinating. Yeah. This book is quite good. I'll link to it in the yeah. in the show notes. The killer had gone quiet again. After eight murders, Chikatilo took a break for the winter. It was simply too cold to kill the way he had outdoors, and it was too much work to lure his victims indoors. He liked the freedom he felt when killing outside. He could spend the time he liked with his victims. Hmm. Once the weather warmed up, he began obsessing again. It was time to hunt. In 1983, between June and December, Chikatilo killed eight more people. Eight more in one year. Yeah. 
Sometime after June 18, 1983, a 15-year-old Armenian runaway named Laura Sarkeesian was murdered in the woods near Shakti train station. Chikatilo was later cleared of this murder in his trial, but it was assumed she was actually one of his victims. He confessed hmm. to it. Oh. But they didn't have the, the evidence. The evidence to convict, yeah. In July of 1983, Irina Dunenkova, 13, was found dead and mutilated in the Rostov Park. This intellectually challenged girl actually knew Chikatilo and had been to his house prior to her murder. She was the only one of his victims who had ever met him before, but hmm. they did not connect him to the crime. Hmm. Also in July 1983, a 24-year-old homeless mother of two, Ludmila Kutsyuba, was killed near the Shakti bus stop. Her body was not found until the next spring. It's the old, old one, oldest one yep, so far. So far. Yeah. On August 9th, 1983... Chikatilo killed his youngest victim, seven-year-old Igor Gudkov. He was also found in the same park as Irina Dunenkova. It was with this murder that the investigators realized their killer was murdering both females and males. Because even to this day, it's that's unusual. Fairly, fairly rare. Yeah. yeah, and the age range is being so vast. Yeah. Chikatilo killed an unknown woman after luring her from a bus stop sometime in August. She's never been identified. How sad is that? Very. Jeez. Sometime in late September 1983, Chikatilo killed 22-year-old Valentina Chuchalina and left her mutilated body in the woods near a train station. Vera Shevkin, 19, was murdered outside a mining village in October of 1983. Chikatilo's last victim of that year was a boy named Sergei Markov, who disappeared on his way home from a work experience set up by his school. Chikatilo's total was now a whopping 17. And it just escalated so quickly. Yeah. Even though word was out that there was a killer about, it was officially publicly denied. Serial killers were a product of Western democratic decadence and not the principled folks in the great Soviet Socialist Republic. Officials were only willing to admit that six of these murders might be connected. Yeah, it, it's interesting how that still kind of happens, you know, if we look at the uh, missing indigenous women yep. in Vancouver, there, there's often a hesitancy from uh, it's interesting. police to yep. uh, admit that there's a serial killer. Yep. Word on the street knew different. People knew something was up. Perhaps there was a satanic cult at work or a band of escaped lunatics were committing the crimes. People in towns around Rostov were terrified and warned children and younger women to be wary. Despite this, Chikatilo still found his victims. The investigations did do some good, and this is from Wikipedia. As a result of the investigation into the killings, more than 1,000 unrelated crimes, including 95 murders, 140 aggravated assaults, and 245 rapes were solved. Oh. 1984 was Chikatilo's busiest year. Between January and September, he killed 15 more people. Wow. Almost doubling his earlier number. Wow. And I'm just going to read names and ages here. Yeah. Natalia Shalapinina, 17. Marta Ryabenko, and she was his oldest oh. at 44. Dmitry Pashnikov, 10 years old. Tatiana Petrosyan, she was 29. Svetlana Petrosyan, unrelated, oh, 10 years old. Crazy. Yelena Bakolina, 21. Dmitry Ilarionov. 13. Anna Lemesheva, 19. Sarmite Sana, she was 20. Natalia Golosovskaya, she was 16. Ludmila Alexeyeva, she was 17. Another un unknown woman between 20 and 25. 
Akmarel Sedalieva was 10 years old. She was quite young, mm. one of the youngest that year. Alexander Chepel, he was 11. And the last victim of 1984, Irina Luchinskaya, she was 24. Like I said, I like to spend a lot of time with our, our victims, but you just can't. No, no. I, which is I, sad. You but could it's do, a fact. Uh, and this is why I haven't tackled Highway Tears. Yeah. Because honestly, I would like to do a whole, say, season of Dark Poutine on Highway of Tears and cover each person. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Here is the person that went missing. That's actually a really good idea. I don't know if we could actually pull it off because I don't know how much information we can get about people. And CBC has already done a really great podcast on Highway of Tears, but mm -hmm. uh, we could bring our own sort of bent to it. We always do. Maybe 2020. We've got we've got so many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got so many episodes planned. Oh God, I got to stay alive until that time. Yes. Oh wow. Somehow, amid uh, amid his 1984 murder spree of 15 people, Andre found the time to have an affair with a woman he'd known for a few years. But they broke up not long after a few trysts together. They were both married after all. It was morally wrong. Totally, totally. You don't want to do that. And it can take time away from killing people. Exactly. After the murder of Irina Luchinskaya in early September, Chikatilo was on the prowl again. He was beginning to think he would get away with killing as long as he'd like. He'd kill 32 people without consequence to this point. It's pretty safe if you're in his shoes to be thinking that, yeah, I guess like the guy can just do this. However, on September 13th, 1984, Andre Chikatilo was picked up by investigators. Mm -hmm. He'd been seen around the city trying to chat up young females, even rubbing up against some very publicly and against their will. He was arrested and searched and questioned. Good. Chikatilo had been carrying a bag. In it were a sharp, eight-inch filleting knife, a few pieces of rope, and a jar of Vaseline. Not suspicious oh, at all. dear God. Not suspicious. Like if you, it's like they could sell that at Walmart as like a serial killer kit. Totally. He'd been charged with theft by one of his previous employers. Surprise, he was a thief too. What? So police felt comfortable holding him on that charge while they looked into his background. Perhaps he was related to those other murders. Mm-hmm. A lot of evidence about uh, Chick Tilo's previous pedophilic and otherwise aberrant uh, sexual proclivities were uncovered. He matched the description of the man who'd been seen with 10-year-old Dmitry Tashnikov, a boy who'd been lured away from a stamp collection kiosk in March of 1984, and the boy had later been found slaughtered, as we mentioned above. Yeah. Semen was collected from that scene. This is what connected the six murders attributed to the same man. Testing pointed to an individual with an AB blood type as having committed these killings. Cops thought they had their man. Mm -hmm. DNA profiling didn't exist yet. Blood typing of bodily fluids was typically done to assist with elimination of suspects. Yep. The sample they collected from Chikatilo indicated that he had blood group type A. Oh. They did not match. Okay, weird. Andre Chikatilo, it appeared, was not the man they were looking for. His name got filed away. He was, however, convicted on the theft charges and sentenced to one year in jail, of which he only served three months, walking free in December of 1984. Good Communist Party member. In October, police finally admitted that 23 of these known murders were linked in some way to the same perpetrator or perpetrators. 
Some intellectually challenged young men had even confessed to a few of these murders, but charges against them were dropped due to discrepancies in their confessions and the actual blood evidence. Well, don't let evidence get in the way of falsely accusing somebody. It did, though. Chiquitillo had committed the murders. How did his blood type not match the samples given? Well, this is a question I'm wondering. Andre Chiquitillo was a non-secretor. And so, a secretor is a person who secretes their blood type antigens into the body fluids like saliva, mucus, and semen. Okay. 20% of the population are non-secretors, roughly. A secretor's body puts their blood type into the body fluids. A non-secretor will not. So wow. it'll be misleading. Wow. For the time being, he'd gotten away with more than three dozen murders. Holy shit. So he was off their radar. Yeah. Oh, his blood does not match. Holy shit. Yep. It's crazy. You got the guy, but... Yeah. Yep. In our next episode, we'll get into Chikatilo's next 20-plus murders, more of the investigation, his capture, and the aftermath. And this has been an interesting case to cover. There are many books and documentaries about Chikatilo. Everybody pretty much does this guy, so I just wanted to get him out of the way. It was really tough to sort through the blatantly made-up garbage that some people present as fact. Oh, really? On this guy. Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of junk. Well, I guess because he uh, is up there in the lore that right. uh, people want to try to gain attention to what they're putting together, or what they're writing or putting out there. And so they maybe they feel like- Just they make, to up make up shit. Yeah. Make it so, more salacious than it already is. I find this over and over again in the more well-known true crime cases, probably for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah. I don't believe the majority of the misinformation is malicious or intentional. It could be just people who are researching cases, choose a single source of truth and just go with that. Yep. Rather than doing the tough work of actually cross-checking, which I try to do, or in some cases, they just make things up. Yep. Yep. I mentioned at the top of the show that we're not journalists, but out of respect for everyone involved, we always try to ensure that we do the most thorough research possible. Yeah, we, we certainly aren't journalists, but no. uh, we're very, very we try to sensitive to uh, uh, the people we're talking about. And Two of the books that I found were well-researched with lots of cross-references are Robert Cullen's 1993 book, The Killer Department, Detective Victor Burakov's Eight-Year Hunt for the Most Savage Killer or Serial Killer in Russian History, and Peter Conradi's book, which I've mentioned multiple times, we've quoted it here. It's called The Red Ripper, Inside the Mind of Russia's Most Brutal Serial Killer. And that was written in 2016. Mm, pretty recent. Yes. Happy Canada Day. <laughs> it, it's going to be Canada Day this weekend. I don't know what Carol and I are going to be up to. Are you and the kids doing anything special? I, I haven't even thought past today, really. Yeah, you guys are having a little rough time. Yeah, we've got some family, family stuff. issues. Family stuff. Yeah, we may time. not we may not be able to do an after show every week because Scott's got some uh, real family issues going on. So there may be some weeks we'll we'll do them on the off week. Yeah, I'm sure that as my family issues progress, people will learn more. But right now, it's just trying to keep it private. Yep. So before we go, we want to mention our Patreon patrons. Uh, we have three new ones to mention this week: Heather Poirier from Surrey. British Columbia. 
In fact, two doors down, Heather. Yes, not three doors down. No. Not to be confused with no. that terrible band. Yes, Heather. Uh, and she, uh, she's a $5 subscriber now, so she can listen to our banter in the after show. And, and might I recommend for any locals, uh, this is the person you want to go to get your hair done. Design tech. Absolutely. In Richmond. She, she was my hairstylist until I just resigned to the fact I'm going bald and started shaving my head. But, she cuts uh, Carol's hair. She cuts my hair. No, she's fantastic. She's, she's great. Great, great person. So uh, yeah, hit her up, hit her up. HP Styles on Instagram. On the Instagrammies. Yeah. yeah so no, seriously, she's really good. Heather is awesome, possum. And she's also mentioned us in a few other true crime podcast groups. Uh, uh, my Favorite Murder, she's mentioned uh, us there. And so that drew us some listeners. Sweet. She's awesome people. Heather, you are awesome. Jen Creelman from Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'm wondering if she is some relation to our Morgan Creelman. It's got to be. I would say, but there's a lot of Creelmans in Vancouver. I know really? a few. Yep. Oh, okay. And Tanya Mina from Toronto, Ontario. Some, some Canadian representation going on exactly. today. Sweet. I don't know, Tanya, are you going to be at the event on July 22nd put on by... Uh, the Canadian True Crime Podcast, because I am going to be there. So if you want to meet me, you know, we can shake hands. Tanya, it's a trap. You can meet my wife too. She's a, she's good. And my wife's cousin, all who knows Bruce MacArthur. All a part of the trap. All a part of the trap. Don't do it, Tanya. Yeah, she might regret it. I don't know. <laughs> no, go do it. You'll have a fun time with Mikey. Thanks so much for your pledges. We really appreciate it. If you want to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal or at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends. And the Yumber Yard, over 500 people in there now. Holy crap. Yeah. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. We have left Podbean for another host, <gasps> but that means that uh, we are also a part of the Murderly Network now. Murderly. Murderly, yeah. So some other podcast friends of ours join this network, and it, it's beneficial to everybody. There's some advertising in the middle of the show now, so you've probably noticed that this show. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it'll be just ads for other shows and then sometimes it'll be actual ads. If it helps us earn some money, it helps us keep doing this. And we want to keep doing this. And we definitely do. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Now you can listen to O Canada, sung by the Red Army Choir. Oh.